To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. One that uproll with his shortest sota, the drocht of march, hath pierced to the rota, and bothered every vein in switch liqueur, of which vertu engendered is the fool. We garena and yadagam, theod cuningathrim grafunan, huitha athalingas elen fremedon. From the Language App Babel, this is Multilinguish. I'm producer Thomas Devlin. The three samples you just heard are, respectively, from William Shakespeare's Hamlet, Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, and Beowulf. What all those writings taken from throughout history have in common is that they're all English, which is kind of amazing if you think about it, that language can evolve so much over time. But how does language change exactly? There are a lot of answers to that question, and in this episode we explore language change. In particular, we explore how humans have caused language change through something called verbal hygiene. First, we'll talk about the more technical and historical side of verbal hygiene, including how two famous dictionary makers tried to clean up the English language. Then we'll turn to a panel to discuss the more personal and political sides of the phenomenon. Before we get started, a reminder to rate and review Multilinguish wherever you listen, and be sure you're subscribed so you get new episodes as soon as they're released. To talk about language change historically, I have in the studio with me right now, David Duchin. Hello. Hey, Thomas. Thanks for having me. So before we go into verbal hygiene and human-caused language change, I thought it'd be good to first talk about how language changes naturally, because that's probably the more common way that things change over time. And so one study that was done somewhat recently that showed a good example of how language changes was done by Joshua Plotkin, and he basically discovered that language change is almost random. An example that he used is that there was one time two different iterations of the word clarity, and the other option was clearness. And so they were both there, and then at one point it just went with clarity, even though you could argue clearness makes more sense as a word. I'd say it's more clear. Yeah, So there's probably (laughs) billions of examples of that over the history of the English language, the history of every language, where it's just language changes, people use different dialects, some things win out, there's no standard, etc., etc. But what we want to talk about in this episode is specifically verbal hygiene. Are you familiar with verbal hygiene, David? Yeah, I've heard of it a few times. So the shortest definition is by Deborah Cameron, who wrote the textbook book, Verbal Hygiene, and is the champion of this concept, really, though the book is from the 90s, and it's just the urge to meddle in matters of language, which is very broad, and we could talk about hours and hours of that urge. Um, Have you experienced any of this verbal hygiene out in the world? I think of specifically my grandmother who was somewhat of a strict grammarian and she was one to call us out myself included, but all of her grandkids for using like too much for putting prepositions at the end of sentences to the point where I was like, I mean, here I am saying like, again, clearly she didn't have, um, her words didn't affect me so deeply that I was scarred and can never use like again. But sometimes I was like, this is just feels a little too extreme grandma. Like, Um, Why go around trying to mandate how we should talk instead of just appreciating the way that we do naturally? That's my direct experience with verbal hygiene. I'm sure there are plenty others, school teachers I've had who try to do the same thing 
or even I think in the past couple of years, this idea of wokeness and PC culture, especially in environments like college campuses, which I have just recently come from, I have heard a lot more discussion around how do we not necessarily control language, but clean it up to be more respectful for people who don't necessarily fit within the boundaries of language as it exists or has as it has existed up until now. Yeah, that really covers the gamut of a lot of different aspects of this. I do think most people's experience with verbal hygiene historically is probably how they're told to speak by teachers because there is, according to them, a right and a wrong way to speak English or any other language. Deborah Cameron calls these people language mavens, which is just anyone who thinks that there's got to be this law and order in language and I also think that there's kind of a moral judgment that surrounds it more than other kinds of verbal hygiene because I think a lot of people are taught from a very early age, like you have to use English correctly and you can go and find people throughout all of history who were just trying to lock language into place, which doesn't really accurately describe how language works. Like it is, as we mentioned, constantly changing. I think this touches exactly in one of the key debates that linguistics tries to address because a lot of people think of linguistics as grammar teachers who are telling you the rules of how language has always existed and and the ways that you should obey certain standards that have been around for generations. But I mean, do you recognize when I say the words descriptivism and prescriptivism, I feel like there's a there's a constant pull. I've heard those words thrown around so many times in my linguistic linguistics classes in my education because linguistics I have been told should focus on describing language as it actually exists instead of prescribing how people should use it. I feel like verbal hygiene fits so well into that narrative, the conflict of like there are people out there who learned language a certain way many years ago and they try to dictate and mandate and govern how it should keep evolving. And there are other people who say, no, language is this organic and natural kind of living being and it grows and it changes and it's randomized and there are mutations. So it's better to capture it and to document it in real time and not try to change it or revert it back to what it was. Yeah, I think one of the most common misconceptions about linguistics is that a linguist will be on the side of these language mavens because people will go, ah, you're a linguist, then you must know that splitting infinitives is wrong. And they'll obviously come back and be like, well, why? What are people actually doing? There's no right or wrong to anything in language. There are obviously arguments for clarity and when you're using language in a way that it just doesn't make sense. Because basically, language is just this contract we've all entered into. We've agreed this is what words mean. This is how we'll use it to communicate to each other. And so as long as you're getting meaning across... Beyond that, linguists aren't going to say, like, oh, you need to stop that. Yeah, to think of linguists as anthropological observers and less about, and less like governors or dictators or rule writers. I think often of this really interesting, like, biological example. It was a quote in some book or somewhere I read, but um, it's kind of like, those who do anthropological or sociological work, or linguistic work, 
it's weird to classify when you're studying people to describe that like something that someone does is against nature or it's wrong. Like you would not a biologist who is studying whales and hears a whale song. If that biologist said, Oh, that whale is singing the wrong song or it's singing its song wrong. Like that doesn't make any sense because a whale by nature of being a whale, it's singing a whale song and therefore it is a correct whale song, you know? So to, to turn that argument and try to use it against people and say, Oh, well this person is using language wrong or this person, their behavior is not natural. It's not, it doesn't fit into the organic evolution of humanity up to this point. Well, it's kind of like, well, it's how it's how people are using language and their behavior in real time in real life. Who are you to say that that's wrong? Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a great analogy. So now I want to kind of set the clock back to hundreds of years ago and kind of go back to where the origins of verbal hygiene come in. Because when language formed and before people were able to write it down or anything, there really was no way to kind of quote-unquote police language. It was just that's how people spoke. That's how they agreed. And it wasn't really until the advent of the printing press that verbal hygiene which the name I should point out can be a little misleading because it sounds like only spoken language, but it also refers to written. But it really needed the writing to kind of set standards over wide spaces. And one of the first verbal hygienists, which I don't like that phrase because it sounds a little too much like dental hygienist, but one of the earliest is Samuel Johnson, a very famous British man, and he created... One of the first dictionaries, I don't think he has the first, because there are codexes beforehand. It might be the most complete or the the fullest to date. It was from like 1750-something, right? I don't think there had been as much work put into a dictionary or one that was as codified as Samuel Johnson's, if I remember correctly. Something about it was revolutionary. Yeah, it came out in 1755, which is a little bit after the advent of the printing press, but his was the first attempt to try to really capture language entirely. And also it was just one guy, really, who was culling these examples of language from all the classics and trying to create this record for the language so people could look at it and be like, this is what the English language is. And I have a quote by him, and he's already kind of acknowledging what the limits of that enterprise are. Those who have been persuaded to think well of my design require that it should fix our language and put a stop to those alterations which time and chance have hitherto been suffered to make in it without opposition. With this consequence, I will confess that I flattered myself for a while, but now begin to fear that I have indulged expectation which neither reason nor experience can justify. When we see men grow old and die at a certain time, one after another, from century to century, we laugh at the elixir that promises to prolong life to a thousand years. And with equal justice, may the lexicographer be derided, who being able to produce no example of a nation that has preserved their words and phrases from mutability, shall imagine that his dictionary can embalm his language and secure it from corruption and decay, that it is in his power to change sublunary nature or clear the world at once from folly, vanity, and affectation. While Johnson wasn't the first person to attempt this, he can already kind of see, like, 
even though he's trying to fix language and keep it in place, it's not possible. It's just going to keep changing. Yeah, he seems to recognize that pretty clearly. He's, I think he's trying to say that a dictionary can capture, can capture a snapshot of language as it exists in real time and it can be embalmed, but it's also laughable to think that language has never changed over generations. I think he recognizes that. I mean, do you have a different interpretation? No, I'd probably say the same thing. And dictionaries are also a very big part of verbal hygiene that is almost, you don't pay attention to it too much. Because I think a lot of people have misconceptions about dictionaries. Like linguists, they're not trying to tell you how language should work. Like there was a point at which the Merriam-Webster dictionary added to its definition of marriage a meaning that meant that gay marriage was also a concept. And people freaked out because it's almost they look to this book as this magic guide to how English language should work. And that's not really what they're meant to be. But still, in their work, they do kind of shape how the language works because it tells you what does this word mean, how can it be used. It's always a kind of difficult balance that they have to strike. I'm reminded, and I, we talked about this book a lot in multilinguish, but also just within our team. But because internet, Gretchen McCulloch, she is really clear that she's trying to use it as a documentation of how language exists as she sees it on the internet right now, but she's really open in saying this could be completely different 10 years from now or 100 years from now if a reader picks up this book and looks back, um, he or she might think that some of the conventions we use now are so funny and so antiquated and archaic, but this is what they are right now. So she took it upon herself to capture that. And I, I think that's all the lexicographer, the, the, the dictionary creator, the linguist can do right now is present language as it exists not try to force it into a box to try to control it to become something or to predict this is how this is what will stay the same this is what will change that's why you see dictionaries with so many additions why merriam-webster comes through and it updates a, a definition for one word or another um and which also can be jarring for people who have known a word to mean a certain thing their whole lives but are maybe afraid to let go of that definition or that understanding yeah what do you have to say yeah, that's definitely a big thing. I feel like any time someone writes about language, though, there is a secret hope that language will stop changing because then their book won't get out of date immediately. But at the same time, you want to sell future editions. It's an uneven, uneven balance. That's why dictionaries have to keep updating and going. And there was actually a fad at one point in when there was a grammatical movement because... As the printing press developed, people started making these books that are like, here's how to write, because more people were learning how to write. Before it was a privileged thing, not everyone was doing it. People wanted to know how to do it. And you could make a lot of money by writing guides to the language and then updating them, and then people have to buy the next one. And like every household in England would need these books. And that continues kind of to today. People still use strunk and white elements of style, even though arguably it's not the best guide to writing. And it has some outdated tips and some things that just aren't true. But another example of a dictionary that kind of more forcefully tried to change language specifically was Noah Webster's. And he came out with his dictionary in 1828, and he really wanted to create an English for Americans because the United States of America was not too old at that point. 
and they didn't want to keep speaking the same quote-unquote language as their former quote-unquote oppressors. So he was trying to change things specifically. And there are things that he did that survived, like when you spell theater, E-R at the end instead of R-E, that was no Webster. But there are things that did not work at all, like he wanted women to be spelled W-I-M-M-E-N, which didn't catch on. That didn't catch on? That's how I spell it, though. Oh, well, I've got bad news. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, I have a quote from him to explain how he wrote his dictionary. It has been my aim in this work, now offered to my fellow citizens, to ascertain the true principles of the language in its orthography and structure, to purify it from some palpable errors and reduce the number of its anomalies, thus giving it more regularity and consistency in its forms, both of words and sentences, and in this manner to furnish a standard of our vernacular tongue, which we shall not be ashamed to bequeath to 300 millions of people who are destined to occupy and, I hope, to adorn the vast territory within our jurisdiction. This is kind of a different approach because he's specifically saying that he does want to change language. He's literally purifying, quote-unquote, palpable errors. I'll stop saying quote-unquote now. But what we were saying before about dictionaries trying to be more descriptive instead of prescriptive, that's not always true. There are people who will write books that are like, I want language to be like this for some reason. Yeah, and this is a clear example of that. And it's also, if you look at the historical context, it's informed by the fact that no one's ever written a completely codified American dictionary before. This is kind of like a radical nationalist experiment. And Noah Webster is saying, we want our own American vernacular, our own version of the language that is uniquely ours, that represents our interests, our history, to the extent that language can really represent a people's history and culture and their whole nationalist mythology. But Noah Webster saying it's entirely possible and I'm going to do it right here. He's trying to make the spelling fit. Like you said, with the women example, like sound, the spelling should reflect the sound and therefore be more accessible to people. Um, he wants language to be kind of like a tool for the people. And if it's going to be for the people, it needs to be for the American people. And he wants to, um, to make it as American as possible with the spelling reforms. Um, I also know, I don't know if you uh, did any research about this, not to flex on you, but in um, when I was writing this paper many years ago, I was also fascinated that he and his new dictionary included a lot of words for resources and crops, especially in the new world, which isn't so much the new world at this point anymore. But like concepts for things that didn't exist in British English, like a moose had never like there are no moose in the British Isles. So Samuel John or Noah Webster had to include an entry for moose in his new dictionary. Same thing with squash. Like the Native Americans taught um, the the pilgrims how to plant squash because they didn't know they hadn't had it before. And so he included words like this to kind of reflect an American history um, was informed by the context of what was physically present there in front of them. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because there is the language that changes just because you need words to describe things that you didn't have before. And then there's the language that you create just because you want to specifically complete, as you said, there's this kind of a nationalist goal in a way. 
And if that sounds weird, it shouldn't, because there are actually some languages that are even more kind of specific nationalist in their enterprise. Not to use nationalist in like the white nationalist way, but l'Académie Française is a very good example because France has a specific governing body that decides what language is good and which language is bad, and they have guidelines they famously have for swearing and the kind of way you're supposed to swear. One of the things they've had to fight against a lot is English words coming into French. They didn't have to fight against it. They just would rather a French na natural term fill the gaps in the language. Like le weekend is very popular in French now, even though that is clearly from English. But there are so many different ways to do verbal hygiene and it's really, I don't want to do a disservice. Deborah Cameron has a pretty good list just of general things. So here's a quote from Verbal Hygiene, just explaining the many, many ways that language change can come about. A random list of verbal hygiene practices in which present-day speakers of English are engaged might include, for example, campaigning for the use of plain language on official forms, belonging to a spelling reform society, a dialect society, or an artificial language society, taking courses in communication arts or group discussion, going for elocution lessons, sending for correspondence courses on good English or reading self-improvement literature on how to be a better conversationalist, editing prose to conform to a house style, producing guidelines on non-sexist language or opposing such guidelines. And these are only the institutional cases. The group of school children coolly mimicking a classmate's posh accent are also practicing verbal hygiene as are the workers who insist on a swear box and fine one another for using bad language. There are lots of options. Um, editing prose to conform to how style sticks out because as someone who's been writing for most of my life, that's been a lot of the verbal hygiene that I've experienced using associated press style, for example. And the important point here is that sometimes verbal hygiene depending on who you are, gets associated with being purely good, as in we need to make sure kids are speaking English the right way, or purely bad, people are changing language and to fit their own needs and ends. But it's not black and white. There's so many different options for why someone might want to change language. Sometimes it will be for certain reasons that are serving their own ends. Sometimes it's just this makes more sense, this is clearer, and sometimes it's just people want to try something new with language. I imagine it's often people, people who are insecure about not being able to keep up with the pace of language growth and change. And so they say, oh, it's always been this way for me. And so I'm going to require that you speak this way as well. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the conservative movement in verbal hygiene that would keep people wanting to stop language from changing. But there are people who do want it to change, and they want it to change the way that they say so. When we get back from the break, I'll be talking to two other people about how verbal hygiene is kind of at the center of a lot of battles over language, and to use a word or a term that a lot of people don't like, political correctness. <gasps> yeah, stay tuned. Multilinguish is brought to you by Babbel, the language app. Babbel's the app that gets you speaking quickly and with confidence. Choose from 14 languages, including Spanish, French, and Italian. Thomas, what's the biggest challenge you face when you've learned languages? 
Whenever we're learning a language, I feel like I've talked about this before, it's always just talking to people in that language, especially if they also speak English, because it's so easy to slide back into English. But I try to work through that. I mean, it's part of just working through my own, like, fear of talking to people. But there's a new level. But, you know, finding a supportive community or just finding someone who's friendly and willing to put up with my mistakes has been not as challenging as I thought it would be, and it's really helped me advance my skills. Great suggestions, Thomas. We're offering multilinguist listeners 50% off a three-month subscription. New customers can get this offer by visiting babbel.com slash podcast. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash podcast. Now, back to the show. And we're back. Before the break, we talked about verbal hygiene on these very national scales and various language authorities and how they've tried to shape how language is used. But now I want to kind of step back and look at language as more of the personal level because people are the ones who use language and we all have these choices we make every day. And I'm joined by two of my other colleagues, Ali Zhao and Taylor McIntyre. Thank you for being here. Hi, Thomas. Hey. So I'll start with an example of verbal hygiene in my own life. It's the phrase, you guys, which I think is a kind of generally inoffensive phrase. But I decided that I would try to limit my own use of it because the phrase guys is in a way gendered. And lots of people use guys. I don't like yell at people when they say you guys. But I found like it is just an example where the male took over for to be the generic person. And that's just an example. I mean, I don't think I'm changing anything hugely in the world, but I just prefer using y'all. Though I know also y'all has certain things around it, and I am not a southerner, and people will tell me, why are you saying y'all? And I'll say, it's better than you guys, and the you is too general. So if you have any thoughts on that, or your own examples, feel free. I mean, my own example is very similar to that, in that... um, instead of necessarily like gendering someone when referring to them by like specific pronouns, I'll use they, them pronouns if I don't know a person's pronouns. Um, and it, it kind of goes in the same um, like bucket of using non-gender specific language as the example of you guys and you all. Yeah, I, I too agree with what you guys were saying. Um, I think one thing, like big thing for me, like I always say like the word dude a lot. And I know, like, dude, definitely, it sounds masculine, and I think its origins come from that type of sense. So I think, and I won't call someone a dudette, because I think that just makes it worse. Yeah, I don't like those, because any et or thing is, like, they're smaller. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It, like, just reminds you that, like, hey, you're a dudette and not a dude. So I think, like, maybe with, like, common slang terms, it's, like, you may not know it, but it's kind of gendered from there. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, dude is a very old term, which I always just like to think of people in the 18th century saying, like, that dude over there, what's he up to? But I always think with dude of Broad City, because they use dude a lot to refer to each other. And that's kind of where a complication comes in, because you can make the argument both that you don't want to use dude because it is masculine, and it refers to other people, Etc. But you can also say, like, oh, I just use dude. It's a reclaiming, especially if you are a woman and you're just like, I don't care about that. It's complicated. Yeah, I think the thing generally to watch out for in these situations is 
using specifically gendered language with people you don't know, like in groups of friends or in like certain scenarios, I think use your best discretion based off of like what you understand about the group. But I, as a general rule, like for strangers or like for people I don't really know very well, like I will try not to use gendered language like in those cases. Yeah. So that's a good example of where personal and political meet very closely because some would call that, as we mentioned before the break, political correctness. And I want to get a little more into that in a second. But before that, I kind of want to pull up a few other examples of things that just affect us in everyday life. So just people telling you that your accent or anything is wrong or anything. Have either of you ever changed the way you've talked in response to how you're either you're expected or if you've actually had someone explicitly be like, that's not how you should talk? Um, I feel like, yeah, sometimes. So I'm a person of color. I am black. So in case you guys didn't know, because you can't see me. But um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that happens to like a lot of like other black people. Like when you're in spaces that where you're kind of like the only one, people are a little like surprised by maybe a dialect that they may be expecting. And then you give them something else. And it's just like, I don't know, like a lot of like, code switching maybe or just people just being like oh wow like you're so articulate which is like the worst thing you can say to a black person because it's just like what do you expect like I too am here and stuff so I think I don't know maybe sometimes if you're not used to being around a certain person you basically fall back on these like stereotypes and what you expect them to sound like and then when they don't sound like that you're like completely mind blown in a sense yeah, it seems like kind of a double bind because you're expected to sound one way, but they also want to, like, have you not talk that way. Yeah. Because they want everyone to sound exactly the same and follow the rules of standard English, which, as we've established in this podcast, hopefully many times, is BS. I don't want to bleep it later. <laughs> That's really um, comforting to hear because I think, for me, like, my example would be there are a lot of words that I grew up reading instead of ever hearing out loud pronounced and so when I use them for the first time like I remember like <laughs> I thought banal was pronounced banal things like that because I never I had never heard it out in like a spoken context and so when I said it for the first time I got laughed at for like pronouncing it wrong but to that point like who decides what something is pronounced like and like how would I how was I supposed to know yeah when I was reading Harry Potter in eighth grade because I started then there was one word, Q-U-E-U-E, that was used many times. And I thought it was pronounced Kiwi for a very long time. Because <laughs> it looks like that. Q is spelled C-U-E. And then I finally realized later on, I was like, it's funny that this word Kiwi that I see written down and this word that I see Q spoken aloud mean the same thing. And then I put it together. But, I don't know, I think also a popular example of verbal hygiene, quote-unquote, that we see in colleges a lot is just accents disappearing. I had the slightest of Boston accents when I first came to NYU, and I still got made fun of because of the way I said comfortable and yesterday. And then I was just like, I'm going to stop doing that because I don't want people to laugh at me. I still can't say water bottle, though, because it's very <laughs> hard because it's a combination of features, and I just want to say wobble. Hmm. I have that. Um, when I moved here from the Midwest, I used to call... I used to say pop all the time and like everyone in this city attacked me for that. And now I've just like accepted and I'm just like, you know what? I'm just going to say soda. It's so much easier. And it was just like, 
yeah i guess it was like a weird thing that it was just like i wasn't expecting people to wait so did you call it a vodka pop before <laughs> <laughs> yes one pop please i don't know pop just sounds better like soda makes me think that like we're in the olden times like hand me a soda over there boy like I don't know. that's funny because i'm the exact opposite where when someone says pop i'm imagining like it's a wonderful life with like george Bailey being like give me a pop <laughs> that's a different movie anyway yeah i mean there's very light things like that at least we're not calling it pepsi or coke coke is the yeah one. it's yeah. coke yeah some parts of the country just say coke there's a great new york times quiz that you can take that will pinpoint exactly where you're from based on how you address things and I think that kind of like comedic prodding is especially interesting because it's like even if you're not necessarily meaning to insult someone, just like making fun of someone for the way that they refer to something as, say, people from Massachusetts call water fountains bubblers. Weird. To talk for a moment about like my own personal language journey and my relationship to language. So when I was younger, as you both can imagine because you've worked with me, I was very anal not anal, about language and just try to conform as much to standard language as possible and be like, this is grammar, and I'd be the annoying person on forums online who would be like, you used the wrong there, so your whole argument is invalid. <sighs> and I have come, I think, a little bit of a ways, <laughs> and a lot of that has been, I studied linguistics in college, and I've been working here, where we talk a lot on the magazine about you can almost call it linguistic acceptance. And it's like realizing these things that you've been taught are wrong by elementary middle school teachers are not wrong. They're just not standard English. So did you have any kind of shift in your relationship? Maybe it's just me and I'm alone in this and a weirdo. I think, so I was the opposite kid. Um, I really just didn't pay attention to grammar or anything like that. It was just like, whatever I do to get by. But I think being on the internet, like one thing is like I love social media and like being in social media and kind of seeing how languages change. So a lot of times you have like phrases that are so like cut in half or short or abbreviations. And like now that's like a way of like reading a complete sentence. Like if you were to show like a standard tweet now, like 10 years ago, and people wouldn't know what it meant. But I think, I don't know, the internet, like watching people, like kind of bringing together different communities and people from all over the world and seeing them kind of adapt to this like internet meme grammar in a sense, um, to me, it was like a really cool linguistic journey because you have like your standard English, but also there's like a whole like internet culture of language that pretty much I think is kind of universal and like just watching that evolve and like using those grammar rules and like creating new rules. It's interesting to see language evolve in that way yeah the internet's a very good example because i think another important thing to point out verbal hygiene is that not all of the language we use has to be the same and also the fact that people online are saying yeet does not mean the english language is collapsing and literature is failing it just means it's a different type of thing so before we start sliding back gracefully to our conversations about political correctness, I just wanted to ask if either of you had any other examples of verbal hygiene. Well, I think a really prevalent example of verbal hygiene is the way that the um, meaning of the word queer is changing in our uh, modern lexicon because, you know, it's it was reclaimed by the punks in the 80s and 90s after previously like being a slur. Um, and 
I am someone who is queer and I once in my life in sixth grade was uh, called queer as a slur, but it never really registered to me as something that I should like really think about. And so I kind of buried that in my um, subconscious for, for many, many years until I like was starting to figure out um, myself. Um, but it is an interesting example because it's something that for a lot of people is a word to be reclaimed and it is something to be proud of. And like living a queer life is something that has a lot of like pride and joy in it and community. But at the same time, there are a lot of people in the um, LGBTQ plus community that don't feel comfortable with the word queer because for them it is um, reminiscent of a slur and it still hits like a slur for them. Um, And so it's kind of this tricky water of like trying to respect the trauma that people um, will face at the hands of derogatory language, but also um, celebrating the way that we reclaim derogatory language um, and make it into something else. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think a lot of communities have done that with like certain words, just like at one point it was a very derogatory thing and they take it back and use it in all types of ways. And I think it's definitely very a sensitive subject and it's something that should you should always be careful with. And if you're not a member of that community, definitely make sure you do your research and don't just outright say those types of words and stuff just because it can offend someone. And especially don't reference other people with it. Yeah. If you Um, don't belong to those communities. Yeah. Yeah, That's a great segue into the last thing that I want to talk about, which is a lot of the times people who are not against verbal hygiene in general, but against, let's say, political correctness modes of trying to get people to stop saying certain non-inclusive phrases or start saying other phrases is that what does it matter it's just language what does it actually mean like how much does language matter in shaping the world that we have and i can say deborah cameron at least has the argument that well you're arguing, no matter what you're arguing for when it comes to language, you're arguing for some side. Even if you say that you just want language to quote-unquote stay the same, it doesn't stay the same. So if you're trying to keep it the same, that is in itself an ideology that you're kind of putting on the world. But she's also on the side that language is not the only method. And I think that's a place where a lot of people can get caught up, where it's if you're only arguing for language to change and you don't actually address the things that the languages that you're referring to, then that's also not great because it can be kind of just like a changing of a facade. It's like when you only want plastic straws to go away and you don't get to the greater point that's like, oh no, plastic in general is a problem. And the straws were trying to just be a small reference to the much larger problem. Do you have any closing thoughts on that? Oh, do I? Boy, do I. Um, You earlier said um, this idea of what does it even mean, which I think is kind of the root of my problem with the phrasing verbal hygiene and political correctness in general. Because when you really look at it, and like I am on the side of language affects all languages, the basis for um, communication and communication is the basis for human interaction, I think. And um, whether that's like language or like body cues or whatever, like communication is... um, how we self-actualize. And so I think about the way that we use words and language to define these terms like verbal hygiene or like political correctness. 
And when you really get into it, it's kind of, it bothers me because verbal hygiene is a way of cleaning up your language. Um, and I don't really think about like using, for example, non-gendering language in that way as something that is clean and something that could be dirty. Um, and the same way that I think of political correctness in that when you say that using inclusive language is a like act of political correctness, I think that really waters down why inclusive language is important because it looks at the term political correctness, I think kind of treats language as something that is incredibly scarce. So if we can't say that, then what can we say? You know, I think is a lot of times the argument for it. And I think the opposite of that. I think language is very abundant. And I think there's a lot of room to make new words or to make new language to be able to be inclusive, right? And so political correctness for me is kind of a, a, a phrase wrought with fallacies in that when you position the act of treating people with respect in your language, then you're kind of putting it as something that has an ulterior motive or has an agenda. Um, and I don't agree with that because I think it is important to use people first language. I think it's important to um, center a person's humanity when you talk about them. And if that includes changing your language so that you don't use derogatory phrases or don't use slurs or like don't talk about people in a certain way that excludes the fact that they are a human, then I don't really see why that's so difficult. I don't really see that as hygiene or political correctness. I think that's seeing people as people. Well said. Snap, snap. <laughs> yeah, I don't have anything else yeah. to add to that unless oh. you do, Taylor. No, I agree with everything she said. Um, like, literally everything. Um, I think just in general, you know, language is constantly evolving. And you wouldn't talk the way we were talking, like, 300 years ago, 400 years ago. Because that wouldn't make sense. And there's so much, there's so many new cool words out there now. And I think... Yeet. Yeah, exactly. I can't wait to yeet out of here. Um, <laughs> but no, just in general, though, language is constantly evolving. And for people using the argument that, oh, I can't, like, what, I can't say this phrase or something like that. Like, I mean, like, grow up. Like, times are changing. This is how we want to be addressed and get used to it. That's all I have to say. Thank you so much for joining me, Ali and Taylor. Thanks, Thomas. Yeet. Multilinguish is produced by the content team at Babbel. We are Thomas Moore Devlin, David Duchin, Steph Koifman, Dylan Lyons, and I'm Jen Jordan. Ruben Vilesh makes us sound good. Our logo was designed by Ali Zhao. You can read more about today's episode topic and more on Babbel magazine. Just visit babbel.com slash magazine. Say hi on social media by finding us at Babble USA, all one word. Finally, please rate and review this podcast. We really appreciate it. Smack that all Ruby. on the floor, smack that. Hi, Ruby. Till you get sore, smack that. Give me some more, smack that. Oh. Do you think he hates when we do this? <laughs>